But the, the big shocker was just that the number of different beds that these these bucks were using. And so, you know, I always grew up and read about, quote, the buck's bedroom and a particular sanctuary for a buck. And this is where they're going to be. From what we found in this study area was there's a lot of buck bedrooms. There's a lot of different bedding areas. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we got a great episode lined up for you this week that I know you guys are going to enjoy. Uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Bronson Strickland of the Mississippi State University Extension Service, as well as the MSU Deer Lab, about a recent publication that they released on buck movement uh, based on some research that, they, that they've been doing and that I believe is still in progress. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I absolutely love these GPS deer collar research studies. Uh, and this one in particular is especially fascinating because it was specifically looking at the behavior of adult bucks, uh, their daily habits, uh, where they're bedding, how often they're using those bedding areas, um, behavior during the rut, and just a whole lot more. Uh, it's really cool data that can definitely be applied to your hunting strategy to make you a better, more informed deer hunter. So be sure to stick around for that conversation. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA partner Schrade Knives. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard the Schrade name. They've been around for over 100 years, uh, but they've recently rebranded and stepped up their commitment to providing high-quality knives for hunters at all budget levels. Uh, I used their new Enrage knife this past deer season that incorporates a 420 stainless steel replaceable blade from the makers of Rage Broadheads. Uh, so you're getting a Rage Broadhead blade on your knife, uh, and it was great. Uh, I've, I've never been great at sharpening knives. Uh, it's a lot of work, and with the Enrage, I never had to worry about a dull blade in the field because I always had some replacement blades right there in my carrying case to swap out when needed. So I always had a razor sharp edge uh, to get the, those field dressing chores done. Uh, so if you're in the market for a new hunting knife, be sure to check out Schrade's full lineup at Schrade.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E.com. Hey, one more thing before we get on the phone with Bronson. Uh, while the weather may be bleak this time of year, I know there's, there's not a lot of outdoor activities going on. Uh, but hey, there is a great reason to get out of the house and enjoy some time with like-minded deer hunters and enthusiasts like yourself, and that's to attend one of the many NDA branch events that are happening in February, and there are quite a few of them, so if that's something that interests you, be sure to head over to our website at deerassociation.com event to find an upcoming NDA event near you. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Bronson Strickland to talk all about what he's learned about buck movement. Well, hey, Bronson, welcome back to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, I appreciate you once again taking time out to come on here and, and talk whitetail deer with me. Absolutely, Brian. Happy to be here. Always happy to talk whitetail deer, biology and management. So thanks for the for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is always Kind of one of my my favorite topics to cover. I, I love hearing about these uh, GPS deer collar studies, where you know we as as hunters get get a pretty unique peek into the the behavior of whitetail deer. So uh, again, yeah, I just love talking about this stuff and hearing about this stuff. And uh, you guys recently published a, a really cool PDF about this this research that that you've been working on, and that's available on the Mississippi State University extension website um, and, and we'll I'll be sure to include a, a link to that in the show notes but it was that that PDF that document that prompted me to, to get you back on here because I think there's a ton of, of great information in there that can be uh, beneficial to, to deer hunters and and whitetail deer enthusiasts and uh, so yeah one one of the first things that you guys covered in the PDF even even prior to to diving into the study, that I thought was pretty interesting was was about thinking like a deer. 
Uh, and I thought that was a great way to kind of frame the information that followed. So uh, I guess, can you kick things off by just touching on that for us? Um, you know, what do we as deer hunters need to know about, you know, the I guess the motivations behind deer movement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there with why we did that is basically we, we need to start framing up the the story, so to speak, with with what is the baseline? You know, what what do we expect deer to do on a, on a daily basis and why do they do it? And, uh, you know, they don't have complicated lives like we human beings have. It's really, really simple. Their daily life is about eating and surviving. And then when the breeding season rolls around, it's about reproduction. And so basically the, the baseline for their movements during the, the non-rut is how can I most safely acquire food? And it actually gets into a, a realm of research that's called optimal foraging theory. And, and very simply, what that means is, is what is the net gain? And so a deer, they have to expend energy. So how much energy do I have to expend or output to acquire food resources? What kind of energy, caloric energy, am I going to get from those food resources? And that needs to be a net positive. I need to gain more than I'm spending. And then coupled with that is the issue of, can I do it safely in terms of predators? Now, for most people in the Southeast, for adult deer, the predator is, is us. And so how do they navigate the landscape to maximize caloric or energy input and without risking their life? That, that's essentially the framework of, uh, of a deer's life. Yeah. Well, I definitely, I, I'm looking forward to kind of dive, diving into that, diving into the details. Um, before we do, though, what's, can you talk a little bit about just the, the background on, on how this particular study was, was set up and, and implemented? Yeah, sure thing. Well, the, uh, first of all, many, many, many thanks, as always with us over here, many thanks to the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Uh, were it not for them and the funding they provided, then this study wouldn't would not exist. And the the impetus for them was really nothing, Brian. That that's that unique. It was essentially the the constant outcry from hunters of where did where did my bucks go? <laughs> and and then there's all the explanations biologists give just just exactly like we're doing this year in, in certain regions. Well, you know, the, the food plots were good or the food plots were bad. Well, we had a, a good, you know, mast year or acorn year. And how is that affecting movements? How about hunting pressure? How is that affecting the ratio of daylight versus nighttime movements? You know, things like that. So it was essentially an effort on their part for we have all these reasons that we know at some level are interacting to affect buck movement behavior. And let's study it. So let's put some GPS collars on bucks and let's quantify what they're doing and see if we can tease apart uh, some of the, the, the most important factors influencing their movement. Okay. And, and what about as far as location? What, what was the area like where, where the study was, was carried out? Yeah, it's one of my uh, favorite regions in Mississippi. Uh, here, we call it the, the Big Black River Corridor. So it, it is not adjacent to the Mississippi River that people have heard, you know, our, our Delta region, or our agricultural region. This is a different part of Mississippi, more central Mississippi. But it, it, it is an area that I consider to have the, the optimal mix of forest and agriculture. So don't think of Iowa, you know, wide open agriculture, and don't think of, in our case, South Mississippi, where it's just wall-to-wall -wall pine forests. It is literally the ideal interspersion of about, you know, 70-30 in some places, 50-50 in others, of forest cover adjacent to agriculture. 
So forest fields in terms of uh, it could be pasture, could be managed openings, and then agricultural fields, big big ag, and then food plots. So really in terms of growing deer population numbers, it's an it's an ideal ratio. And in terms of growing relatively large antlered bucks because of high quality food availability, it, it's also a good region for that as well. Okay. And what about as far as topography? Is there much topography in this area or is it pretty pretty flat? Well, we're in Mississippi, so uh <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of topography, I guess. <laughs> yeah. There is a little bit. I, you know, it, it it's not the the flattest part of the state. There's a little bit of roll here and there, but you know, generally speaking from someone from Appalachia or the Rocky Mountains, yeah. it's flat. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And then as far as the, you know, the, the number of, of deer that you collared and, and the types of deer, male, you know, bucks versus does and what, how was that? What was that like? Yeah. So the, the goal, and, you know, this is one of those things where you set out and you have a goal and then, you know, reality sets in and you have to <laughs> modify a little bit. Yeah. The goal was more or less to collar exclusively older age bucks. So our preference was always going to be to the the four-year-old, the five-year-old, the six-year-olds. And we were able to get some of those, but time, logistics, et cetera. And just because you have a six-year-old buck out there on the landscape, it it doesn't mean you're going to capture them either. So we we ended up essentially, our our youngest bucks were two and a half, and there were just a, a few of those. But it was mainly three-year-olds and four-year-olds when they were captured. And then it was a two-year study. So when we captured a three-year-old, by the end of the study, he was a, he was a four-year-old. So twos, some twos, mainly threes and fours, and then some fives and some six-year-olds. Okay, nice. Well, we, we also, I, obviously, we, we didn't want to capture yearling bucks and dealing with dispersal events and things like that. So we definitely want it to be two and a half plus. Okay. Gotcha. Well, before we dive into the more specifics, I guess, of the results, can you talk a little bit about just the broader movement patterns um, that you witnessed and and maybe how those changed over the course of of the year? Just just kind of a high level overview to start. Yeah. So I guess I would break that up in in uh, two components. First of all, and I think you've done a podcast with with Luke, our PhD student, Luke Resop. I think he talked about some of the buck personality uh, yes, findings. Yeah. So what, one of the big picture things was we have about two thirds of the bucks do what we think they should do. And, and that essentially means they, they have a, a set home range uh, throughout the year. And they spend most all of their time there. So just think of a, a big circle, a big square, this, you know, 600 to 1,000 acres. And that is where that, that buck is found. And then we had a, another group of about a third or so that had what, what we called, you know, a mobile personality. And that just essentially meant that they had this very decided shift from they occupied, they had a home range. In, in one area, and then distinctly with no overlap whatsoever, another home range that might be a mile away or, you know, 10 or 15 miles away. And so that, that really started answering that question of these bucks showing up and these bucks leaving was these mobile personalities. Uh, I guess the, the other really big picture is uh and this should come as no surprise but in general just looking how their movement behavior changes from the the pre-rut and through the rut and then post-rut and so as, as predicted you know the the bucks are uh having significant increases doubling and sometimes tripling their their daily movement the the length the distance that they're moving in the day during the rut. Okay. Yep. No, no, I guess real surprises there. I mean, like you said, right. I, you expect as you get closer to the rut, those deer are going to be uh, traveling, traveling much greater distances. Now looking, I guess, more at daily activity 
and and I think back to when I, I first started deer hunting and and what little I knew about whitetail deer uh, came from you know magazine articles and and old VHS tapes I'd rent and at the time I I think I had this idea in my head of, of that deer would just you know they'd have this this bedding area a bedding area you know this one bedding area where where they would hang out all day and uh, you know just before dark they'd get up and, and head to this preferred one preferred food source you know and feed all night and then you know that morning they would uh, reverse the process and, and head back to their bedding area you know that was that was my perception of of uh how these deer lived and and all i had to do as a deer hunter was you know find those two things and set up between them and you know i, I should kill a deer every hunt but uh obviously it, it rarely worked out that way and and i'm guessing uh what you saw with these these gps collar bucks was probably a little more complex than that. So can you kind of walk us through, I guess, the daily movement patterns of, of these quote unquote, you know, of the quote unquote average deer, I guess, in, in the study? Yeah, sure thing. Well, uh, Brian, you're not unique. Uh, I probably watched those same tapes and read those same articles and and I, without a doubt, oversimplified the, the process as well. And, and wouldn't it be great if that's the way it was, <laughs> if they were always yeah. in this particular bedding area, you, you could figure, figure it out pretty quick. Yeah. So what we learned is that, you know, bucks are choosing a lot of different spots on the landscape. Now, th that's not to say that a buck is just at random, you know, going to say this is going to be the, the bedding area. It's still associated with cover. You know, it's still associated with screening cover. And uh, I was actually talking to to Luke this morning about this, how some of these bucks definitely had some individual patterns. And for example, there are some bucks because of the layout of the study area, they, they would find very isolated areas. So think of just, you know, a spot on the landscape that was surrounded 75 to 90 percent by agricultural fields. You know, they could put themselves in those spots and more or less detect anything coming to them. There were also some bucks that would basically always are bedding adjacent to the river, in this case, the, the Big Black River. And it, it's almost like being able to go in a room and putting your back against the wall. So everything's out in front of you, you know, in terms of what, what, what's coming your way. But the, the big shocker was just that the number of different beds that these, these bucks were using. And so, you know, I always grew up and read about, quote, the buck's bedroom and a particular sanctuary for a buck. And this is where they're going to be. And from what we found in this study area was th there's a lot of buck bedrooms. There's a lot of different bedding areas. And I think it's essentially once they, once they finish their feeding bout, wherever they are at, they probably have a memory of these different areas and they probably conveniently just go to the one that's closest to them. But, but, but it ends up being many different bedding sites the 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 bucks are using okay yeah we'll we'll, we'll touch more on that and more on more on the the bedding side of it uh here in a minute i guess i should back up one thing i didn't ask you as far as the study setup was um what was the the hunting pressure like in the study area was this a hunted area or a non-hunted area or um, yeah you know, how was that yeah another detail as well that we were getting locations every 15 minutes so it wasn't like there was an hour or two interval in between getting a location. It was every 15 minutes we're getting a, a, a location from these bucks. And so it, it helps you really put together, you know, how they are moving through the landscape. There was hunting pressure and in some places probably intense hunting pressure. But Brian, I would categorize it as normal private land hunting pressure. So. I cannot say that it would be like uh, on a wildlife refuge or a WMA on opening day where you got, you know, 100, 200, 300, how many ever hunters are on the landscape. It was just a very typical private lands 
type hunting pressure. Okay. And I guess as far as, you know, you, you talked about, you know, obviously they're not, they're not using this consistent one bed and, but did you see, I guess, consistency among these bucks as far as just daily movement patterns, not necessarily where they went, but the amount of movement and the timing of their movement, that kind of stuff was, was there any consistency there? Yeah, that it's kind of, uh, I would say probably what was the most consistent was the distance that they moved, but they'll take a, a lot of different routes and think of it maybe this way, Brian, <clears throat> is a, a really cool metric that no one else may think is cool, but I do. <laughs> so, so I use it a lot. I don't know. To me, it just kind of when I'm thinking about hunting, for whatever reason, this really resonates with me. We calculated daily home ranges, and it, it was remarkably consistent for individual bucks and throughout the year that a buck is using about 200 acres per day. So before you get to the rut, those 200 acres, those little daily home ranges have a tremendous amount of overlap. When you start getting, though, especially the pre-rut and the rut, those 200-acre daily home ranges are further and further and further apart. So it really, Brian, depends on in terms of what their pattern is and, you know, are they using the same areas over and over? I would say, you know, in the non-rut or way before the pre-rut, yeah. Um, they are. But when then you get into the, the, the pre-rut and rut, they are using every single day different areas, but a remarkably consistent amount of area just in a different place. Okay. So their, their home, their quote daily home range, maybe, you know, 200 acres o over here one day. And then, you know, the next day it's still 200 acres, but it's, it may be a ways Half away from world. the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And, you know, one thing we tried to quantify that, we use something, this is going to be a fancy term here, but the, the movement ecologists would call it net displacement. Uh, we we kind of just called it net distance. And so for, for those that download the publication, you, you can look at that figure, it's, it's figure nine. And what we did there was month by month and through the rut phase, we looked at the total distance bucks were moving. And that's an average, the average total distance they were doing in a day. And then what we called the, the net distance. And the net distance is simply where the buck started and where the buck ended. And that was calculated at midnight every night. So th think of it this way. Let's walk through one. So we got buck you know, 17. At midnight, where is his location? So we know exactly where he is on the face of the earth at midnight. And then what is the distance 24 hours later? Where is he at? And so the, the way that worked out was that total distances daily went from 4,000 yards a day before the rut to at the peak of the rut was about 7,500 yards a day. And then the net distance would go from about a little less than 500 yards a day. And then when we got to the peak rut and after the peak of the rut, that was about 700 yards a day. So, Brian, what we were talking about earlier with those 200 acre home ranges, that would be kind of a way to say that there's about 700 yards between that 200 acre daily home range during the rut. Yeah. Yeah, I found that I had I had net displacement in my notes here. That was definitely something I, I wanted to touch on. That was very that was really interesting to me because, like you said there, you know, looking at that graph and and, and to put it in in uh, terms that that I can more easily visualize is, you know, they were traveling, you know, during the rut, like you said there, over some of them over over four miles during the course of a day, but but only like you said, only changing locations by. A half a mile, if if that. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So that was, that was really interesting to me. So I assume that they're just kind of meandering through that, that 200 acre daily home range. Just, is that kind of what it looked like on the, on the grass? Just kind of yeah, wandering yeah. through there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So w- within that, we have, uh, we have some, some bedding time. And then we have some, they're going to get up, of course. You know, you can imagine uh, a buck getting up and stretching his legs after he's been in the bed. And he may forage around. It may be foraging for vegetation. He may be looking for acorns, but it's a very different type of movement. And then we have the, the straight line distance. So imagine a buck has made up his mind, I'm going to that food plot. And then it's more of this, you know, straight line distance from point A to, to point B. And but when you put all of those movements together for a 24 hour period, it was ranging from about 4000 yards per day to a little over 7500 yards per day. OK, now, did you see much of those those straight line type movements during daylight hours or, or was that more of a night thing? And you know, with the the kind of the meandering in, in a smaller area during the day and then straight line travel at night or or was it just <laughs> certainly certainly more of the meandering during the day. But but there would absolutely be cases of the, the straight line movements during daylight hours. Now, it's probably getting close to sunset. You know, we're not seeing that very often at 11 o'clock or one o'clock during the day. But yeah, there, there's some of it, but most of it during daylight hours is going to be more of the, the uh, meandering. Yeah. Which is why it's, it's so important to, to get in there tight to, to those bedding areas. If you can figure out, you know, w- what bedding areas are being used, but yeah, if you can identify the yeah. right one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've mentioned there, obviously that, the, that they're using a lot of different bedding areas. Is there any affinity to the, to the food sources. I mean, do, do, are these deer using, are they being attracted to a, a individual food source, you know, daily, or is that pretty, you know, I guess sporadic too, moving around to different food sources from day to day? Brian, you, you're asking some, uh, some really good <laughs> questions and uh, I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to steal the thunder of Natasha, but but before we started recording, we were talking about the the deer study group is right. coming up here soon. And uh, Natasha, a postdoc that works in the deer lab, she has got a really thorough analysis on that. So I, I don't want to steal too much of her in- information. But but the bottom line is there. I would say they have an affinity to a group or a network of food plots. So. We, we really didn't see where, you know, buck number 18 always went to this particular food plot. They're, they're going to a lot of them. Okay, gotcha. Which and I think really sets up, I'm sorry to go off script there, no, but no. that to me is one of a, a great hunting strategy is that, you know, when you do the bird's eye view and you look at these food plots and then you, and then you put these tracks, these movement tracks down, there is a lot of bouncing back and forth between those food plots. And me as a hunter, I'm thinking, you know, all right, well, I could put all my eggs in one basket and go sit or hunt. I'm not going to say sit directly on the plot, but hunt a particular food plot. That, that would be a strategy. Another strategy would be going to Google Earth and looking at what would be the corridors that would connect these three food plots. And, and, and that would be where I would focus is because they're moving and, and checking all of those, you know, maybe not all in a particular afternoon, but they're, they're going to be getting information from all of those food plots. And think of a food plot this way too, Brian. Number one is food. I mean, that, that's obvious. But number two, during the rut and pre-rut, there's more of a social aspect there. I mean, these bucks are coming to these to these plots and looking at, at what doe groups are there and heat checking them. So and think about it, Brian. I know you've seen this. I've seen it, too. You've got a food plot and there's two or three groups of does out in the plot. A buck shows himself. 
And if it's during the rut or right before it, he runs up, does heat check. And then what does he do? He moves on. The does yeah. stay there and continue to forage and that, that buck moves on. So then think about when that buck is moving on, he's probably next going to another food plot. So how can you set yourself up in between those? That may be a more effective hunting strategy than sitting on the plot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, honestly, that's good news for hunters as far as the, that they're using these different plots as well. Um, because unless you're you're unless you own or you're hunting a, a large acreage, um, you know that that might that might give you uh, at least an opportunity. Maybe you might you might just have one small plot on your place, and, and the deer are hitting plots on the neighbor's place too. But uh, you know, you, the, the the opportunity is there for for a buck to uh, you know show up and, and make an appearance at, at your plot as well. So. Yeah. And, and and that's a good opportunity to uh, if your neighbor has a plot is, you know, you can go to uh, Onyx, Hunt Stand, Google Earth, whatever, as long as you have some recent uh, aerial photography, figure out where your neighbor's plot is at. And then what's what is the corridor or maybe a habitat feature connecting those two? And that might be a good place to set up. If he goes to your neighbor's plot first, and he may not make it to your plot until after dark, but you may catch him in between in the woods. Good place to set up. Guys, I wanted to take just a quick break from the interview to let you know that the work we do at the National Deer Association wouldn't be possible without support from partners like Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, and their customers throughout North America. A grant from the Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund is supporting the NDA's national initiative called Improving Access, Habitat, and Deer Hunting on Public Lands, with the goal of improving 1 million acres of federal and state-controlled lands by 2026. Hey, this grant is directly accelerating work in this initiative to address forest vigor and access issues in six different states. In the end, this will address declines in deer hunter numbers, habitat quality, and hunter access helping to improve wildlife conservation for generations to come. Now back to the show. Now, did, did you guys look at any, as far as on, on overall deer movement, any outside influences as far as, well, we'll talk about hunting pressure. I know, I know that was uh, looked at some, but as far as, you know, weather, moon phase, that kind of stuff, was that uh, incorporated into the study at all? So, Brian, you, you're, you're wanting hate mail, I guess. <laughs> uh, we, we get it anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, th- there's uh, there is nothing it seems like generates more negative comments on social media than we when we talk about moon phase. T- to answer one of your questions, though, f- for this, we we really didn't get into weather that much. We, we have done that previously and really didn't fa- find a very strong signal. I mean, there could be some subtle effects here and there. Uh, we want to do that again with these data, but but we, we did not include that in, in this publication. But what we did look at was moon phase. And before we, we get going on this, let me go ahead and, and uh, head this off. We only looked at moon phase. We did not look at moon position. Okay. You're reading so, my script. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't do the moon rising, moon underfoot, moon, moon overhead, but that is coming. That That's in, in the near future. But yeah, we just plotted. We put both years of data together and aligned them up with the, the moon phase. And, and Brian, the, the way I read this is there can be someone that, that looks at the graph that we generated and you might see some very subtle differences. You, and you know the old saying, you know, I, I wouldn't have uh, seen it if I didn't believe it. And so <laughs> yeah. if you're programmed to believe it, you might see a few little places on this graph where, man, it looks like the, the moon is really influencing deer movement. But let's go back to baseline. The baseline is how far is a buck moving every single day? And then now, when we have the moon phase, lay that on top of it. And are we seeing deviations from the norm? And so when you look at the graph there that we generated prior to the rut, 
and we've got it broken up into daytime movements and nighttime movements. But during during the day, I mean, you might find when the the moon is full or the moon is new. And, and you know, when you dig into the some of the hunting articles, you, you find support for both of those. It, they move more on a new moon. You have something, or well, they move more on a full moon. But you just see that the baseline is during the day, they're moving a thousand yards. And then maybe the moon adds a hundred yards on top of that. So, and you have to be really looking to see that. But, but what you're missing is they're already moving a thousand yards before the rut. And whether the moon is new or the moon is full, yeah, okay, well, they moved an extra 200 yards. The, the big picture is that before the rut, they're moving a thousand yards during the daylight. And during the peak of the rut, they're moving 2,500 yards during daytime hours. <laughs> That's the big effect. It's not the yeah. additional 100 yards, give or take, on the moon, if that even existed. And I'm not convinced that it is. I just think that's normal day-to-day variation, you know. But we posted that on social media a while back. I think that was with our first year of data. And holy smokes, did that... uh, (laughs) That got people yeah. angry. Yeah, yeah. People have strong beliefs uh, one way or the <laughs> other. So, yeah. <laughs> but I, but yeah, had, even, uh, I was even at a seminar face to face and I, I had one gentleman get very, very irate with me and uh, essentially got up and left. <laughs> so people have yeah. strong beliefs relative to the moon. Yes, they do. And, and as far as uh, as moon position, the thing that always comes to my mind is. You know, that's that's a timing, a time of day thing when I guess and I don't even know exactly what the theory is. I know it has something to do with being over, overhead or underfoot. But I mean, pretty much every GPS deer collar study that's ever been done and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, consistently shows peak movement is dawn and dusk. And so obviously, if, if moon position was factored in there, if it was if it was having an impact, I would think, you know, that would show up in those. Suddenly, if if they move more in the middle of the day rather than dawn and dusk, um, you know, you could pick that out. But I'm not aware of, you know, right of any study that's shown anything like that. And hey, I, I'll be uh, completely transparent about this, that there, there is a difference that we need to acknowledge. And I think it helps us with from the, the science perspective, it helps us with credibility with hunters is there really is a difference in what we looked at and what hunters see. And what I mean by that is we've got a collar on a buck and we are tracking how much it moved. So we can very precisely calculate how many yards or miles that buck moved in a day. But, but I cannot provide any information regarding did a hunter see it or not. And that is where we get some blowback, and and rightfully so, is that, yeah, but with such and such condition, whether it be weather, such and such condition, whether it be moon, I see more deer under that condition. That is something, Brian, me and the data, we can't speak to that. You you very well may. It, It may simply be that our data is not picking up that rather than the deer was walking through the woods where a hunter could not see it, it walked on the edge of a food plot where a hunter could see it. And that contributed to a hunter seeing more deer on the days that have such and such environmental conditions. So, so that is a little bit of a disparity in our data and camera data and hunter observation data. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, as a hunter, I've often wondered if that if something like that's not the case with the whole um, cold front thing. And, and I don't want to go down, you know, that rabbit hole. because That's a whole uh, whole podcast episode in itself. But, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier there, there, there's there's hasn't been a lot of uh, of research that's shown, you know, weather impacts on deer movement. But uh, that that's I think if if anything, that might be a get more hate mail than, than the moon phase does is when you say, you know, code fronts don't increase deer movement, but. Oh yeah. Don't mess with my barometer. (laughs) But, (laughs) but like you said there, maybe it doesn't increase deer movement, but maybe it, you know, impacts where they move. 
So that, that's so. right. I, I completely concede that that could be going on and that motivates me to work with the study to, to demonstrate that or not. Right. Yep. Yep. Still, still a whole lot left to learn about, about these, uh, these animals we love to pursue. That's, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, get, getting, getting back to bedding. And if, and if I get too far in here to, you know, to where you don't want to discuss it because of, of the upcoming, uh, you know, deer study group meeting and, and that research that's being presented, just absolutely just say so. But, but, you know, obviously you said that they're not, they don't have this, this one bedding area that they're, they're going to on a daily basis. So how many different bedding areas did these bucks have on, on average? Well, we, we provided a, a good example. And again, for those that, that download and view the, the publication, we've got it displayed there quite well. And I think, let's see, that's over a, a one week period. So uh, in a seven day period, this one individual buck had 10 different bedding areas. <laughs> so 10 different spots. It was still in a, you know, an area that was a couple hundred acres. So it, it wasn't like his bedding was 10 miles away. It was still in a right. you know general area, but, and there were some areas, Brian, that had multiple visits. Like on this graph, there's a, a spot this buck liked where uh, it had four visits, meaning it had four bedding events in, in that small bedding area, but it had several of those, several of those. And some of them were more or less a little cover patch within a forest. And some of those were in a cover patch in the middle of a field. So it's, it's, it's just very difficult to define exactly where a buck is going to be. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. And I really do. I think this is very important. These results apply to our study area. So. I don't think you can take this information and go to Iowa or Illinois where the landscape is completely different regarding how much of the area is wide open and how much of the area is cover. And so th those are very, uh, in the Midwest, those are very cover restricted environments. So you may see a great deal of bedding site fidelity in those areas simply because they don't have a lot of options. There may be only a couple places on a 500 acre track or 300 acre track where there's even places to bed. But when you get to the Southeast, a lot more heavily forested, I'm not going to say there's quality cover everywhere, but there's a lot of places a deer can go and lay down and, and be hidden in bed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is for sure. Yeah, that I definitely learned that from moving from Kentucky uh, down here to to Georgia, where yeah, it seems like everywhere is a bedding area. So it uh, it definitely make, makes it a little tougher to to pinpoint. Yeah, and it's like that story you were you were talking about earlier. Wouldn't it be fantastic if, like in the videos down here, there were just these one or two bedding areas? Man, it makes setup really really easy, but. It's kind of like think it, think about it this way, Brian. If you're on a, a a larger property and you go sit on a food plot, deer don't don't just enter from one spot. They will empty into a field from a lot of different places. And and what I'm inferring from that is there were a lot of different bedding areas on the periphery of that food plot, and they're coming in from from different angles. And that's kind of a nightmare for a bow hunter, you know, but if, but if you had a plot and they only entered, you know, because of the way cover was arranged, they only entered from this one spot, man, it makes setup really, really easy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, did you see any consistencies as far as the type of, of cover or habitat that, that these bucks were using for bedding? The consistency was that there was always good structure and it really didn't matter if it was tall grass like broom sedge it didn't matter if it was in a wetter area and it was palmetto it didn't matter if it was a big thick nasty patch of blackberry 
but it was essentially somewhere they could go in and bed down and they were essentially concealed. And how we measured that, uh, I think we've got a photo in the publication is we, you know, we use this, this stick and basically it, you're able to monitor the, the visual obstruction with it. And so we went to places where random spots on the landscape and we looked at this, uh, this measuring stick, essentially, and what proportion of that stick can you see? And, and typically, it's, it's just wide open. You can see the entire stick. When we went to the places where we had documented these are buck beds, these are the areas that bucks are most frequently going to to bed, it would essentially not only conceal the stick, it would conceal the person holding the stick. So. And again, as I said earlier, the type of vegetation really didn't matter. What mattered was that it would conceal the deer. Okay. And, and, and hey, the good news there is it really doesn't matter where you're at. I mean, it's, it's getting sunlight on the ground and it could be stems. It could be tree stems. It could be grass. Like I say, it could be palmetto. So it's kind of what, whatever environment you're in. When you get sunlight on the ground or create a, you know, a canopy gap in the forest, whatever grows there was sufficient. Okay. Yeah. It, and it sounds like one thing I guess I always wondered as a hunter, as I'm out there scouting and, and seeking out, you know, these thick potential bedding areas. And it, it sounds like I always wondered if, if they're typically bedding on the edges of this cover where they still have good visibility or if you know if they'll get right out in the middle of it and it sounds like from what you're saying there you know they'll they'll get right in the thick of it that that hey that that's a really good question and i hate i I think we've been the whole podcast without saying this so far but i think that's a big old fat it depends i I think it's going to depend on the size of the cover patch you have so a, a lot of the places we documented were fairly small. You know, they may be 10 yards by 10 yards or 50 yards by 50 yards. We'd re, we really didn't have these big blocks in terms of, say, 10 acres or 20 acres that was all quality cover. So in that case, Brian, you, you very well may be correct. That if you had a really big bedding area like that, a buck may choose to be on the periphery of it. And, and you know, I've heard a lot of people mention that just from hunting and, and jumping bucks or finding their beds that they typically see that. And, and that very well could be going on. But the landscape we studied, we really didn't see that. Not because bucks aren't doing it. It's just because those types of cover blocks really weren't available on our study area. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it makes me think of of an incident that I that I had this year. I was out scouting a place, and it was really it was a just kind of a big old field type situation. A lot of broom sage with some scattered pines out in it, and and really, I mean, a deer could have bedded anywhere in this field and and been pretty secure. But uh, as I was walking around the edge, there was like one little pocket on the on the edge of this field of of just you know thick briars sumac and it probably wasn't 20 30 foot you know circle uh but but that's where the buck busted up out of as i was you know walking through there looking looking for a potential spot to to hang a trail camera but it's you know wasn't surprising but it's pretty cool to see you know like you said you got this big big block where they could bed but he he chose the you know the little thickest nastiest corner of that block to to make his make his bed and this is an area that that gets a good bit of hunting pressure too so i'm sure uh that that had an impact as well yeah no doubt no doubt which getting into that i guess let's kind of dive into you know how did what kind of changes did you see in these movement patterns um and maybe preferred bedding feeding that type of stuff as hunting pressure ramped up you know you may talk to Steve Damaris about this, and he may give you a different answer. I was very underwhelmed huh. with the changes in, in habitat selection. And th- this would make a lot more sense to someone visually if, if, if they could look at the, the charts that, that we displayed in the publication. 
But so we, we categorize, broadly categorize the areas, you know, there's bottomland hardwood, there's herbaceous, and that's kind of like a old field. Think of that. Pine forest, upland hardwoods. And then, of course, we had uh, summer food plots and, and winter food plots. And what we saw as hunting pressure got more and more and more was that basically we no longer saw a pattern in deer selecting for a particular vegetation type. And so let, let me back up and say it a different way. We thought what we would see is here's baseline habitat selection. Here are the vegetation types they prefer and they're spending more time. Now let's add intense hunting pressure and let's look at how their habitat or vegetation choices or preferences change. But we really didn't see that. What we saw is that in all of those vegetation categories, their selection for those, for those types all uniformly decreased. And you may be thinking just like I did initially, well, if they're not selecting for pine forest, then they got to be selecting for something other than that. If one category goes down, a, another category has to go up. And that is where moving with working with really smart people, movement ecologists, basically how to interpret that is you had these patterns of habitat selection before there was hunting pressure. When you added the hunting pressure, there was no longer a pattern. So an established pattern, meaning deer were going to these particular places reliably. Now, when you add hunting pressure, you take away the pattern. And so basically, bucks were behaving individually. So if they found a, a place where they could hide, if they found a way to navigate the landscape, it may have been unique to that particular buck. And another buck may not be using that exact same pattern to navigate the landscape. So essentially, all that to say, Brian, we went from some established patterns of habitat <laughs> selection before hunting pressure. When you add in hunting pressure, there is no pattern. I hope that made sense. It does. And I guess maybe I'm interpreting that wrong, but is it just that they basically shifted their, their focus maybe on preferred habitat as far as, you know, food sources and, and that type of stuff to just security and surviving? Is that what's yeah, happening? That, 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 that's exactly the way I would look at it. I would look at it as preseason, low hunting pressure, no hunting pressure. Let's go back to where we began with the optimal foraging theory is the deer is going to preferred places and taking the preferred route to get there. Now we add in hunting pressure and they're taking different routes and may not be going to the places they originally preferred. They got to shuffle the deck and find a new way to acquire food and a new way to navigate the landscape to do so. And so the pattern for all these bucks across the board is now individualistic. Okay. And did, I guess, did overall movement decrease or, or change significantly with, with hunting pressure? D didn't really see that. I, I don't think we have a, a graph showing that, but no, we didn't really see that because they're still having to navigate the landscape. They still have to acquire food. Bucks are still going to investigate whether does are in estrus and they're going to chase estrus does. So we really didn't see that. We just saw more of a shift in they were not following the pattern they were before hunting pressure. Okay. And I always, I always have to ask this in these, these uh, deer GPS collar studies. And, and I know it's, uh, it, it's really speculation, but I'm just curious as a hunter yourself, did, did any of these bucks that you monitored strike you as just unkillable? I mean, the, the behavior they had, the, their movement, their bedding locations, you just thought to yourself, man, there's no way you would ever, ever get to that, that deer, you know, during legal daylight hours. You know, I, I don't have a particular one in mind, and it's th that's a very good question, by the way. It, it's really overwhelming, though, to try to 
to look at these individual tracks for these bucks is because you know you've got you've got 60 bucks and then you've got a track every day and so when you look at some of these you can, you can see real obvious like yeah you could intercept him here yeah he's vulnerable here and then you have another day where man they're just mainly in cover or deep in the forest and they're really not exposing themselves so i don't think i would say here's how I, here's how i would say it let me back up I think there are some bucks before you get to the rut that could be really, really difficult to kill. But in just about every case we saw, once the rut is on, they they all expose themselves. That that is the chink in the armor there during the rut. And again, no no surprises there. Most people know that. But but I I can't recall Brian of an instance where there there would not be an opportunity to kill him. Yeah, like I said, I know, I know it's speculation, and and yeah, that's a good point. You're you're looking at a, a lot of data, and it's not like you're just uh, picking out one buck and saying, okay, you know, could I could I kill this buck? But and I, it's I, also I, just to add to that, I'm looking at it from a bird's eye view, and so imagine you're at Google Earth, you think, yeah, I could go set up right there. We've all done this too when you're scouting. And you you go to that place on the map that looks perfect, and when you're on the ground looking at it, you're like, man, there's no way I can hunt here. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is terrible. So th- there's that as well. Hey, one more thing, Brian. I, I thought I would mention we we talked about deer habitat selection. We we also did something I, I thought was pretty cool. We did hunter habitat selection. So you know these hunters were were tracking where they are as well. We're keeping a record of where they hunted, the the stand they hunted, you know, and so forth. And um, c- can you guess where uh, where hunters hunted the most? <laughs> I'm betting they were on those food plots. They were on those food plots. Yeah. That is exactly right. They were nine times, I should say, the, the selection coefficient, but there was nine X difference between food plots and, and any other place on the landscape. So. Take that as opportunity as well. Everybody else is going to be on the periphery of those food plots, you know, back up and get in the woods and think about those those habitat corridors, the network that's linking up those food plots, and you'll probably be more successful. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, and, and I don't claim to be, uh, you know, a, a consistent big buck killer by any means, but uh, my success on, on as far as bow hunting and, and public land deer, it it really increased when I started getting away from, you know, like you said, openings and, and what a lot of guys refer to as the pretty woods, you know, those nice open hardwoods uh, that, that we all love to, or, or at least uh, I used to, to love to hunt, you know, such a, a nice looking setting. But when I, when I started getting away from that and really diving into the thick stuff, that's, that's when my success really, really started to increase. And, you know, I think these, these studies just back up why that is, you know, yeah. deer aren't, aren't going to expose themselves if, if they don't have to, or they're going to, you know, avoid those, those uh, open areas where they're, where they're easy picking. Yeah. And there's probably another reason there too. Like you just said, there, there's ample cover for them to be able to, to navigate and, and feel secure. But Brian, you're also probably somewhere where 99% of other hunters are not. Yeah. That is true. That certainly helps. <laughs> yeah, because you've all heard the stories of, you know, the guy killing a, a big buck right off the, the WMA parking lot or something because every other hunter is walking right past, you know, going going deeper in the woods. So that's right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So deer, deer, uh, deer want to be where, where we are not. So mm-hmm. definitely a, a factor to take into account there. So well, you mentioned it there as far as. You know, hunters love to hunt those food plots and and feeders and and that such. So I assume you know you saw a fair amount of uh, of avoidance of those areas once once hunting pressure was on. Yeah, they're still visiting the plots, and we're going to have a really good graphic at at the deer study group, and we could maybe share it in a, a another podcast later, Brian. But the bottom line is yes, we looked at entry times. 
So entry time, meaning that we have a GPS location of a, of a buck in the woods. And then what was the first time the buck entered the food plot? So visible to a hunter. And as the season progressed, and as more and more hunting pressure on those plots accumulated, we started seeing a really big shift of in, instead of entering an hour before, then it was 30 minutes before, and then it was very rarely is a buck entering that food plot until the sun is set. So absolutely, the hunting pressure on those plots, according to the data, is having an impact on them. Yeah. Yeah. Not not. Not surprising, but yeah, no, we still surprising. we still love to hunt those food plots, though. It's <laughs> just can't get away from. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess as we kind of wrap things up, as far as the the this deer movement study, what would be a few of the kind of your key take home messages uh, for a deer hunter listening now who wants to improve their odds of of crossing paths with a mature buck next season, other than. Stay out of the food plot. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, that's that's really a good one. I would I would think about the the ways that I hunt and uh I would stay off the food plots. I would really think about looking at this from the, the big picture regarding the the network of and some places may not have this, but a lot of places do. You got a network of, of food plots on the landscape. Look at some connectivity between those what are what are your cover corridors between those you know your your fundamentals are that deer are going to move most around sunrise they're going to move again mostly around sunset and then they're going to double their daily movement when you add in the rut so just in terms of probability and you placing a bet you're in a pretty good place if you're doing like hunters have always traditionally done, just being in the right spot at sunrise, being at the right spot at, at sunset. And when the rut comes along, even though their movements are more unreliable in terms of sight fidelity and where they're at, they're, the, the distance they are covering during daylight hours during the rut is double. So you're just increasing your odds of encountering a buck during daylight. Now, regarding, we, we talked a lot about the bedding, is we focus, rightfully so, rightfully so, we focus a lot about, let's put some good food on the landscape. It's really, really important. It's good for growing a deer population. It's for good for improving antler size and so forth. It's good for attracting deer, deer observations, hunting opportunities, et cetera. But I, I think we also need to be putting some uh, effort into figuring out where cover is at and strategically going in and manipulating the habitat for cover and strategically placing where you want cover to be. And, and a lot of people are doing that now with, with hinge cutting and, and and I think that's uh, I think that's a good idea. I think that's a, a really good strategy. And it's not always going to work out. If you create a really good cover block, it's not going to mean that a buck is always going to be there like we talked about earlier. But I, but I think it's going to increase your odds if you start thinking about there are these three food plots on my property. And then if I can go in strategically and add cover in the right spot. I think it's just going to increase your odds for success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I will put a link to the to this deer movement uh, publication that you guys have have put out in our show notes, and I would encourage everyone listening to to take time to check that out and and download your free copy because there's there's a lot more details in there than than we were able to to cover here today, plus some graphics to where you can actually see what uh, Bronson was talking about here and, and get a little, a little better visual on all that. Yeah. But, but before we wrap up, I think I heard that, uh, that you're going to start doing some wildlife consulting of your own. Yeah, that, that that's right. Still going to continue with the, uh, with the science and the research and the outreach and all that good stuff with the MSU deer lab, but then also just kind of moving into a part of my life where, uh, helping people. So rather than just kind of uh, educational stuff like we're, we're doing now, 
but also working with some some people individually from a from advisement and from a consulting standpoint. So uh, I'm adding that to to my to do list as well. So <laughs> great opportunity to take the all of the science that we've accumulated over the years and work with people to to help them apply it on their property and increase uh, wildlife management success. Well, good deal. Well, for for anybody listening that that may be interested in in having you out to take a look at their property and and doing a consultation, what's the, what's the base, best way for them to to get in touch? Sure thing. We have got a website we just built and should be live here any day now. It's called wildlifeinvestments.com. So just Google or type in wildlifeinvestments.com and it'll take you to our homepage and you can look at the team uh, that we're putting together to, to help people with, with deer management and, and wildlife management in general and managing their, their property and increasing the recreational value of, of their property as well. Good deal. Well, Bronson, I, I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks again for your time. I'll be sure to in, include a, a link to the website there in our show notes. And uh, yeah, I, I just I wish you the best in, in your new venture. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Always great to talk to you. And uh, I love all of my work at friends and colleagues with NDA. So uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Bronson Strickland. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. Mm -hmm.